Matthew chapter 10. We're in the middle of a study through the Gospels, uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're currently dealing with the 12 apostles. And uh, if you're interested in getting more detail on this, uh, John MacArthur has a good book, which I get a lot of material out of, called uh, 12 Ordinary Men, and he goes into depth onto each one of these guys. Obviously, we don't have time to do that, um, but we've been kind of taking small little bite chunks out of this. And uh, just in way of (laughs) review, uh, last week, um, remember, we looked at the idea that um, there's three lists or four lists of uh, three lists of four uh, of the apostles throughout the Gospels. And um, today we're going to be looking at uh, James and John, who were brothers. So they had the same mother. So if you're looking for a tie-in to Mother's Day, there you go. Okay? I'm not a big topical teacher, so once in a while I'll do a special message on Mother's Day. But uh, this week, this year, uh, kind of want to work our way through Matthew. So, um, But you'll, you'll see some of the characteristics of these these guys, and obviously they got them from their their mother and father, and so uh, they have a godly influence, obviously. But uh, we, we talked about how there's three lists of four, and in each of the, the lists, there's there, they may be in a different order, but each list is always started with the leader of that group, that subgroup of four apostles. So the first list was Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Peter's always listed first in that first group. The second group was Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Philip's always listed first in that group. And then the third group was James, the son of Alphaeus, not the same James we're talking about today, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. And James, the son of Alphaeus, was always listed first in that group. We looked so far at um, uh, Peter was the first week, and uh, we looked at basically a lesson in biblical leadership. And Peter was the apostle who always opened his mouth and put in his foot. Every time he talked, he just opened his mouth, insert foot. And then the second week, we looked at Andrew, and we called him the apostle of small things. And Andrew was a real quiet guy, okay? He was the brother of Peter, so he always lived in the shadow of his boisterous leader brother, and some of us can relate to that. Um, These guys were fishermen of Galilee, and he was mentioned the least. He's only mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, Andrew was. And so uh, his his name means manly, and he was a devoted Jew before he came to Christ, and uh, we looked at some of his characteristics. He was a guy that kind of would feel more comfortable back in the shadows rather than out in the the limelight. And he was always, uh, that was just his personality. That was his characteristic. And so uh, today we want to look at James and John. But first we're going we're to look at, at the third in this group. And I just want to read for us the text that we're looking at in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them the power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. And then he, he names them there. First, Simon. And we, we talked about how that didn't mean he's just first in the list. He was pretty much the leader of the whole group. He was designated as the leader of the whole group. Any group needs a leader. Simon Peter was it, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebaeus whose surname is Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and uh, Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. And so we're working our way through this list, and, and today we want to look at, at James 
and John. Now, these guys are are brothers. They were also uh, fishermen with their father, Zebedee. And we believe that Zebedee and his family was pretty well-to-do because it tells us in the scriptures that he had hired servants to help him with the fishing business. So it was a pretty good-sized business, apparently, and his two sons weren't enough to help him, so he was able to go out and hire other people for his, uh, his fishing business. And so they had a pretty good fishing business, probably on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and James fits into this first group because, remember, each group is, is listed kind of in order of their calling, too. The first four apostles were, called, uh, were the first ones called to Christ, all right? And the second group was kind of removed a little bit of time. And then the third group was even more removed. And we talked about how each of these groups, even their intimacy with Christ, diminishes as you go down the group. <clears throat> the first group was real intimate. Okay, the second group was not so intimate. The third group still knew Christ and he was part of the apostles, but they weren't that intimate <clears throat> with the Lord. And so James fits into this first group because he was in the early calling. Um, John and Andrew were the first two, as a matter of fact, and certainly and uh, certainly James would also be close to John because we always find him wherever he went. He was always with his brother John, uh, that he worked his way into that intimacy of that, that small group around Christ. Um, now, when we, when we stop and we look at, at James as far as his whole... Uh, his characteristics and things like that. We know that he was John's older brother because he was always generally listed <clears throat> ahead of John. And so he was probably older than John. Um, we don't know a whole lot about James other than what we're going to talk about today, which isn't a whole lot. Um, we knew that James and John are called the thuns, sons of thunder. <laughs> All right, how would you like to be a mom and have two boys, and their names, code name is Sons of Thunder. Okay, that just kind of gives you an idea how these guys uh, acted and their characteristics, all right? But we see several instances in the Scriptures where we, we get a glimpse of James. We don't see a whole lot, but once in a while we'll see something, and it kind of sticks out at, to us, and the Lord or one of the Gospel writers goes into a finer detail. But it's almost like instead of a photograph of James, you're looking at his silhouette. You're just kind of looking at a rough outline of who he was and his characteristic. And, you know, we want to ask the question through this series of what kind of people does God use? Because that's really what we're looking at here. Sometimes people think, well, I have to get education, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to learn all this Bible verses before God could ever use me. And, and that's not true, okay? All of us could probably go around the room and, and, and give examples of when we were first saved and we didn't know squat about the Bible or about God or about anything. We just knew that God saved us and we knew the gospel and we knew that it was our duty to go out and tell others about it and that's what we did. And remember, they'd always ask you questions. Well, what do you think about evolution? What's that have to do with anything? <laughs> You know, you're a sinner. You need Jesus. He saved me. He can save you. You know, and we probably stepped on a lot of toes and turned a lot of people off. But we didn't know any better. All right. And so don't think that you have to be at a certain level of spiritual maturity or anything like that before God can use you. God can use a child, for goodness sakes. And we've all probably been in conversations with children where they say the most profound things at times. And we step back and go, wow. That is a truth that I never even would have thought of. So God can use anybody who wants to be and has a desire to be used. 
And so don't get an idea that these 12 guys are some guys that, you know, we see them in stained glass windows and churches and cathedrals are named after them and all that, that these were just the cream of the crop. That Jesus went through a headhunting firm and said, give me your best 12 men because they're going to be the team that I'm handing this, this, this whole entrepreneurial church over to. The church didn't even exist up to this point. And Christ was going to be off the scene in a matter of years and he needed people that he could train. And he didn't go out and find the best guys as far as qualifications. These guys were fishermen. They were tax collectors. Um, and so that gives us hope, <laughs> at least it should, that God can use them. He can definitely use someone like me or you. And so it's, it's kind of an encouraging thing. But in Mark 3.17, Jesus gave him this name, the Sons of Thunder. And it's almost as if, if you were to look at these 12 apostles, I mean, we know that Peter was designated the leader, but it's almost like James should be the leader. I mean, Peter's the designated leader, so he's always out there opening his mouth, putting his foot in it, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, you know, cutting a servant's ear off. I mean, all the crazy stuff. He's just very impetuous. He's just always on the the verge of doing something wrong. Whereas James seems to be kind of a more natural you might say, leader among the group. And James is the leader, if he is, it, it, kind of over all the, you know, the guys Peter was designated, but of that, that, that group, you see James definitely having a big part in that. Um, so he must have been passionate. He must have been zealous, fervent, um, very ambitious, very aggressive. Have you ever been in business with somebody who's just over the top, A-type personality, very aggressive, and it's just, man, they're just going, 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 going. And you just want to stop and go, don't you ever stop and just take a breath. You know, that can be draining for some people to be around people like that. And they don't even know they're that way sometimes. I mean, do they get a lot done? Yeah. You know, and you can look back usually behind them and see the bodies strewn on each side. (laughs) You know, that's just the kind of people that, that they are. And see, James was kind of that way. He was designated as a a son of thunder. Um, Now, to give you kind of an idea a little bit about James himself, um, Herod was very ticked off at the church. He was very, the Bible says, vexed at the church. And the first guy he went after was not Peter. The first guy he hunted down and had his head cut off was who? James. So you could see James was even out in front of Peter in some ways in his influence in the society at the time. What did they do with Peter? Well, they took him to jail, but only after the, the, you know, the, his, the, the Romans kind of said, well, you know, you might want to put this guy in jail. You can kill this guy. I mean, he's a real troublemaker. Put Peter in jail. And that's what they did. They ended up putting Peter in jail. But he was kind of off the, the radar map a little bit there when James was around, because James just kind of overwhelmed the whole group with his personality. Um, I mean, when you capture James and Peter and you killed James and you let Peter live, that says something about who, who they are, <laughs> okay? Um, and so Peter basic, or James basically was, was one who was just out in front of, of the other guys altogether. Uh, he was the first disciple to be martyred. They got rid of him quick. They probably were threatened by him, the Romans and the the religious people of the day, because he was so outspoken about Christ. 
Um, you know, I mean, you can, can't you just see James in this situation where, where Jesus is in the temple and he takes out the whip and, you know, he begins to, you know, drive the money changers from the temple. I mean, you know, Andrew would probably be sitting back in the shadows watching this take place. You know, James is out there like, yeah, get him, Lord. You know, hit that one again. I mean, he's just over the top. Very zealous. Now, you know, zeal is an incredible virtue to have. Would it be that more people had a zeal for the Lord? You know, someone who's very aggressive for Christ. Someone who's all charged up and ready to go out and just win the world for Christ. But you know and I know that zeal sometimes comes with a lack of wisdom. And so you have this potential for zeal and, and people go out, and, and, but they don't have the wisdom to know necessarily how to interact with people. And so sometimes you're shooting your mouth off and the guns are going wild and then you don't realize, whoa, what am I doing? I'm doing more damage than I am doing good. And you say, can God use somebody like that? Can God really use somebody like James who just could fly off the handle at any moment? Matter of fact, he can. And that should give us hope. And there's several incidents that stand out in the Bible where it talks about James. There's not a whole lot, but we have some. One is over in Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Remember, these guys are brothers, James and John. We'll look at John secondly today, but first we're going to look at at, at, uh, James. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now remember, it's, it's, it's time to move toward the Passion Week. That's where we are as far as a timeline. All right? And so it says there, And it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he said fastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. All right? The messengers are going now into Samaria to prepare the way. It says there, and as they, they went, they entered a village of Samaritans to prepare for him. They wanted the Samaritans to hear the message that Christ was coming. The Messiah was on his way. And it says there, verse 53, But they did not receive him because his face was set for a journey to Jerusalem. See, Samaritans hated the Jews. They hated Jerusalem with a passion. They had their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim, and they they probably chased these messengers away, the guys that went to Samaria. Hey, the Messiah's coming. They probably chased them out of Samaria, cursing them and throwing stones at them. That's how much they hated them. It would be like us going to maybe a a Muslim country and preaching Christ. They probably wouldn't throw stones at you. They'd probably cut your head off. But either way, they wouldn't like you. So they probably chased these messengers away. So the messengers came back and say they're not going to receive you in such and such a village. And look at what verse 54 says. It says, And when the disciples... It names them James and John. They're always listed together for the most part. One time, uh, one of them is listed by, without the other. But for the most part, they're always listed together. They were just brothers at the hip. James and John saw this. Here's what they said. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
just like Elijah did. I mean, talk about over-the-top zeal. I mean, it'd be like going down to San Francisco and witnessing on a street corner to some homosexuality, and they, they curse you and maybe, you know, mock you in some way, and you have somebody with you who's real zealous. Do you want me to call fire down on them right now, Lord? I mean, can you imagine that? That would just be crazy. Well, that's what they did. They were that kind of personality. They didn't think anything was wrong with that. I mean, you can tell their personality just by who their heroes were. Let's call fire down like Elijah did. But look at what Christ does in verse 55. But he turned and he rebuked them. Zealous people, a lot of times, they they need to be rebuked. They need to be set back in their place, just a tad. It's great that they got all this energy for the Lord and they just want to go out and and win the world for Christ. But sometimes you've got to tell them, you know what? Just calm down a little bit. Just, just take a deep breath. Because they have a tendency when they're, they're witnessing to somebody one-on-one even, sometimes they get so excited, the other person is, is so intimidated. They're just, it's, it's almost repulsive to them. And that's how James and John were. They just had this personality that was over the top. And Jesus turned and rebuked them. He says, you don't know what manner of spirit you have. In other words, this is not the spirit for now, guys. Elijah's spirit does not apply now. We don't just burn these guys into crispy critters because they don't want to receive, they don't want us to go through their their country. It's not the time for judgment. Even though they were ungodly and even though they were heretical nation. It's not the time for judgment. See, sometimes we want to make the time for judgment now. And God has to say sometimes, you know what? Now's not the time for judgment. Now's the time for grace. Now's the time for mercy. How many times have we been in situations where we could have lowered the the arm of judgment righteously and lopped off somebody's head? Because they deserve it. And sometimes God has to pull us back and say, hey, you might have a right to do that. You might be within the realm of what the Bible says needs to be done in that situation. Sometimes he taps us on the shoulder and he says, but how did I treat you? How many times could I have lopped your head off, Steve, when you said the wrong thing at the wrong time? When you did the wrong thing at the wrong time. And sometimes we have to be reminded of the grace of God in our lives. Because without the grace of God, beloved, what would we be? We'd all be toasty critters. We'd all be on our way to hell without any hope of any forgiveness, any release of the burden of sin that we carry day to day. That could never be released from us if it wasn't for the grace of God. That's so important. I mean, Jesus, God could have very well said, you know what, my son's going to come and he's going to die. And then he's going to be raised on the third day. And this is a way for you to get saved. But guess what? It's not going to be of grace. I'm going to make you work for it. 
If you want salvation that's available to you through death of my son, Jesus Christ, you're going to have to work, toil, day and night to the day you die if you want to spend eternity with me, Buster. God could have done that. He could have been totally righteous in doing that because we don't deserve anything. But he didn't do that. He didn't set up a system of works. See, that's what we do. We set up our own system of works and our own mentality. If I do this, God will hug me more. If I do this, God will love me more. And God says, you know what? I don't want your works if you're going to do them with that kind of spirit. If you're going to do stuff for me just to earn credit from me, I don't want it. It's like somebody coming over and saying, hey, you know, I'll help you, with, I'll help you cut your lawn. Okay, I, yeah, I could use some help. All right, and then you find out they have an agenda why they're helping you. You know, they, they want something from you. They're not just there graciously helping you. All of a sudden, you're going to be on guard. You're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't need that kind of help. Nobody needs that kind of help. See, when God graciously reached out to us and saved us, it was by his grace. And Christ... God, Jesus, sometimes has to come along to us, even us who are Christians, and remind us that, you know what? Except for the grace of God, there go you. What right do you have to condemn this person? Zero. Zero. We're all sinners, and we all need His grace, His forgiveness. James and John had a problem with that. They were just going to call fire down and zap them. And God says, no, that's for another time. It's not now. Now is when we proclaim the gospel. Now is when we proclaim the new covenant. You guys are out of sync. You're on the wrong wavelength. Your basic sinful character is kind of leaking through. Burn them up? Yeah, that's an idea. We could do that, but that probably wouldn't accomplish a whole lot. Whole lot. And then he says, For the Son of Man isn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So what they do? They just went to another village. Jesus rebuked them strongly. They were, they were hateful in their spirit. They were intolerant in their spirit. They had a lot of zeal, but they didn't have any sensitivity. I mean, what kind of evangelist would they make? I mean, I'm glad that they had the zeal and everything. I'm glad that they got mad when somebody dishonored the Lord. You know, it's, I mean, the problem today is we don't have guys, people like this. We have people that just sit there and watch the Lord be dishonored day by day by day and do absolutely nothing. I'd take these two over them any day. At least these guys, you can kind of rein them in and tone them down a little bit. At least they got some life. They got some fire to their spirituality. It's hard to take somebody who's just a bump on a log, not doing nothing for nobody, including the Lord, and to get it started. It's always easier to to kind of reel in something that's moving than to get an object moving in the first place. So James was explosive. He was fervent. He was passionate. He just didn't sit back like Andrew and watch things happen. Look over Matthew chapter 20. There's another incident here. 
Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20, we see the characteristic and the personality of James come out. Very often, zealous people are very ambitious people. They're very goal-oriented. They're very task-oriented. And so this is an incident that we looked in reference to the disciples a couple weeks ago. But in verse 20, look at what it says. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, John and James, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So here comes James and John's mother, and they're kind of dragging along on her skirt strings, you know, behind her there, up to see the Lord. Now remember how, what, what happened here, okay? They wanted to get something from the Lord. And it says there in verse 21, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said, well, I was just thinking, you know, Zebedee and I were talking last night, and you know our boys. I mean, they're just very passionate. They're very great. They're too great in your ministry. They just have, you know, and they start listing off these characteristics of James and John. And she asks in verse 21 there, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Because we think they deserve it. <laughs> I mean, my children are gifted, aren't they? I just told you why. It's a parent. I mean, they're the cream of the crop. I mean, these other guys, you know. But our kids, I mean, any parent is that way, right? Take it one step further. Any grandparent is that way. I mean, don't ever get two grandparents in the same room, you know, especially if they got pictures. I mean, you're in trouble fight could break out. I mean, they're the ones that have all the zeal. I mean, you know, what about Peter, Lord? Well, you know, Peter's got some issues. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he's got some zeal too, but he's got some issues. He'd probably deny you or bail out one day. But I don't think James is going to have that problem. See, Peter faltered here and there, but it seems as though just from his personality, James was more resolute. He was more committed to the task. I mean, for example, he was dead in 14 years. He was so committed to Christ. He was such a threat to the society that hated Christ. They killed him in 14 years. He wouldn't compromise. He stood for the truth, and that was it. He saw he had ambition just oozing out of him. I'm going to go all the way for the kingdom no matter what. And at this point, he's thinking, I'm not only going to get into the kingdom, but I'm going to be at your right hand, Lord, because we deserve it. And Jesus said to him there, you don't even know what you're asking. (laughs) Just hold on a second. You don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And their answer, oh, sure, no problem. Just showed you how ignorant they were. See, sometimes 
even in our own prayer life, we are so committed to something. We are so, we are so desirous of something. We go to God and we, we ask God for it. But God forbid he should say no because that's not the answer we want. And that's not the answer we're going to be prepared for. So we just pursue what we want and we're not open to anything else. We've all been there. We've all done that. See, they went to Christ and they said, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. And he says, you don't even know what you're asking for. Do you have any idea what you're asking for? He said, first of all, it's not mine to give, it's the Father's, verse 43. But then he says in verse 24, it says, and when the ten heard it, okay, they're kind of in the background there, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And we talked about how that, that didn't mean that they were looking at those two brothers going, how dishonoring is that? No, they weren't displeased because they went, they were displeased because they thought of it first. Because they felt they should be on the right hand and the left hand. All 10 of them, all 12 of them felt that way. How egotistical this group of guys was. And apparently even the shyer ones. Like Andrew was sitting back on, yeah, I I think I should be there too, Lord. (laughs) Just amazing. Sometimes what our pride can lead us to. It's a terrible thing for them to do. James and and John kind of brought this whole fervent argument up to a pitch by having their mother go and ask for them. It's interesting that these were the same guys who were going to persecute the Samaritans by, by calling down fire on them. And now they're cowering behind their mother because they want, they want their mother to ask Jesus a question. See, James had zeal and he had great fervor and he knew the Lord's special interest in him. He was on the inside group and he really felt that he ought to have equal reward for all of his capability, all of his talents, all his giftings. And the Lord had to remind him, you know what, James, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be rewarded all right, but it's not going to be with the way you think. Before you get your throne, you're going to get a cup And you're going to have to drink that cup all the way down. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cup of suffering. Sometimes we don't like to hear that, but, you know, the way to the throne is always through the cross. It's always through the cross. Reward always comes through hardship. And as I said, James, 14 years later, got his request. He was dead. He was executed for his faith. He wanted a crown. Jesus gave him a cup. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted to rule and to reign. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. Amazing. Sometimes we don't know what we're asking for when we go to the Lord with what we want. Turn over to Acts chapter 12. One last look at James. And we'll move on to John. Acts chapter 12. Beginning right there in verse 1. Now about, the t- about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. 
See, when Herod wanted to attack the church, this, this new group that was starting and was causing all these problems, who'd he go for? He went for the main guy. Look at what it says. And then he killed, verse 2, James, the brother of John, with the sword. First guy he took out was James. Why? Because he was the troublemaker in their eyes. He was the guy that was always out there just preaching Christ and in your face, over the top, judgmental, passionate, fervent, major zeal, maybe not a whole lot of wisdom at times. And then it says, well, you've got to put Peter in prison too. So they seized Peter and they put him in, in prison. It was James, after all, who was designated the son of thunder. He was filled with zeal and ambition. He wouldn't compromise. He didn't like things outside of his own sympathy. And and Christ had to harness all of that and turn him into something useful, turn him into something that was a pillar for the new church. What kind of people does God use? Well, we've seen he uses great leaders like Peter. He uses quiet behind-the-scenes, obscure, faithful people like Andrew. And you know what? He can also use people who are brash, who are courageous, who are ambitious, who are zealous, sometimes loveless, even insensitive, selfish people like James. He can use them. Because Christ brought his temper under control. He bridled his tongue. He directed his zeal. He taught James to seek no revenge, and to desire no honor for himself. And finally, came to a place where James was willing to literally die for Christ. See, both of these brothers, James and John, drank of this cup. For John, the cup was a lifelong, a, a, a long life of rejection. He was, he was basically exiled to a, an island, Patmos, to live in exile. For James, it was a short flame and then martyred him. Back in those days, the Romans had a coin that on the coin was an ox. And the ox was facing, it says, an altar and a plow. And under the ox it said this, ready for either. See, That's how we have to serve Christ. That's how we're called to serve Christ. We've got to be ready for either. It may be a lifelong, effective ministry, whatever. It might be hard. You know what? Your life may be sniffed out before you even know it's over. But either way, I'm going to serve Christ. That's how it was for the sons of thunder. There's a moment, dramatic sacrifice on the altar. That was James. And there was a long furrow of the plow, and that was John. Both of them drank of this cup of suffering. James had to learn sensitivity. He had to learn to quiet his ambition. He he did so with God's help, and God used him. I remember years ago in ministry that... I was, I was very much, um, not in a malicious way, but I was very insensitive to people. And for the most part, I still have somebody saying, you haven't changed at all. But 
Trust me, I have. <laughs> okay? I mean, I was worse than I am now. Let me put it that way, if you can imagine that. Um, and you know, a lack of sensitivity can really destroy a ministry. It really can. It can utterly destroy any ministry that God desires for you. There are a lot of people that, that try to serve Christ in, in different ways, but they're totally insensitive to people. They're totally insensitive to their congregation, their families, people around them, whatever it may be. And, you know, that doesn't portray well the love of Christ. And so we're all on that learning curve, I, I hope. But there was a Norwegian pastor. MacArthur tells this story. And his motto was this, all or nothing. And he went around preaching and hurling out kind of lightning rods and screaming thunders on everybody. He was just an evangelist and just, you know, uncompromising, powerful, powerful Norwegian pastor. Even the people in his own church didn't care for him because he didn't care for them. He was so ambitious. He wanted to advance the kingdom of God so much. He wanted to uphold the standard of God. It didn't matter. If you didn't meet that standard, man, he just wrote you off. He was blind to anything other than that. Even when it came down to his own family, the story says he had a little girl, just a little tiny girl, and this little girl was ill. And the doctor, they met with the doctor, and they said, you know what, you've got to take your little girl out of this Norwegian cold to a warmer climate or she's going to die. And the pastor looked at the doctor and said, all or nothing. And he stayed and she died. And when she died, the mother was so distraught, so shattered, because she found no love in her husband. But all the love that she had for anything was all kind of bottled up in that little girl who passed away. She would sit for hours in a rocking chair, holding her clothes, just smelling the clothes and remembering what it was like to have her little girl with her. That went on for several weeks, and finally the husband came and took all the clothes, and he gave them away to a homeless person. He said, all or nothing. He didn't know it, but the mother kept the little bonnet that she used to put on the kid's hat, head. She kept it under the rocking chair. And one day the husband found that little bonnet. He said, I told you, all or nothing. He got irate. And he took that bonnet and gave it away. And gave her the all or nothing lecture once again. And in months, that lady died of grief because her husband was so stupid, so insensitive to her needs on the altar of sacrifice for the Lord. There's a lot of pastors that are willing to sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. Silly. It's ridiculous. A lot of good preachers over the years. Billy Sunday was one. Great evangelist led thousands and thousands of people to Christ. But you know what? All of his children died in the unbelief. All of them. He was utterly insensitive to the ones around him while he was out winning the world to Christ. See, there's a lot of people in Christian ministry. There's a lot of people who are involved in church ministry 
who aren't even listening to what's going on in their own household and the people around them. They're so task-oriented. It's just, hey, we've got to grow the church more. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got to start this ministry. And see, zeal with insensitivity can be downright cruel. Would it be to God? We're not like that. James had to be redefined. He had to get from the place where he said, you know what, Lord, just burn them up. (laughs) They don't cooperate. He had to get from that place to a place where he cared for people that were lost, people that were broken, that he would take the time to stop the train and get off and minister to somebody, the train of life. Like I said, if you're going to force me to pick, do you want somebody who's like James and John or somebody who's cold and compromising and kind of a milk toast kind of a... I'll, I'll take people like James and John any day. Okay. But we do have to tone them down through the Spirit of the Lord. God uses people like Peter. He uses people like Andrew. He even uses people like... James. You don't have to be born with a halo around your head. You don't have to be pictured in a stained glass window in a church. You just have to be a person person. And for some of us, that doesn't come easy, but we know that we have to try harder at that. But these are common people who God used. Last guy for today, John, the apostle of love. He's the last guy in the group of the first four. And if you want to know a lot about this apostle, read his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Read Revelation. Read the Gospel of John. You'll learn a lot about him. He was called the Gospel of Love, or the Apostle of Love. And uh, he's, he's the brother of James. Okay, we know that. And uh, we also know that he wrote a significant amount of the New Testament. He played a major role in the early church. He was a member of the inner circle with Jesus. He outlived all the apostles, by the way. He was given, along with his brother James, the designation of the son of thunder. He was apostle of love. He appears only one time by himself in Scripture, which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, if you're thinking, oh, this is the apostle of love... (laughs) So, you know, you got James, this fire-branded, you know, crazy man, and then his brother John, the one who, you know, puts his head on Jesus' bosom, and he's probably a little pale-complected, little weak arms, and probably a little, maybe a little effeminate in the way he talks and walks. And, you know, that's how we kind of picture it in our mind. Trust me, that's not the picture of John in the Word of God. All right, we've missed it totally if that's what we think. Stop and think. He was right there besides James in all these biblical uh, experiences that we just went through, those three. He was right there, probably cheering James on. He was one of the sons of thunder. He was intolerant. He was one of the guys that was saying, burn him up, Lord. He was ambitious. I want your seat on the left and the right of you. He was explosive. He was zealous. Probably not as much as his brother, but he was. James seems to be more prominent than John, but John does have that tendency. He lived nearly to be a hundred. He outlived everybody. 
Now, it's interesting to note that the only time he appears alone by name, the only time in Scripture, you know what he was doing? He was mad at somebody. It's kind of like God just isolate that one time. Okay, you're going to mess up. Well, now we're going to focus in, right? It's just like the way God does that, you know. He had to learn the balance of truth and love, as most of us do. Well, who is John mad at? Look over at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Let me spend a couple minutes here. Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 38. He was mad because this guy was casting out demons. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. And John answered him, speaking of Christ, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. Kind of like, you know, us for no more kind of mentality. Oh, you don't go to this church? You got you must be going to the wrong church. I mean, you know, you see that? See that all over the place today. He's not in our group, so therefore I told him to cool it. John was a sectarian. He was narrow-minded. Look at what verse 39 but Jesus said, do not forbid him. It's like, what are you thinking? For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. All right? Important truth to understand. told him to be quiet, Lord, because he wasn't in our group and he was doing some of the stuff, the miracle stuff that we're supposed to be doing. He wasn't part of us, so I told him, stop it. can't do that. That's unbending, John. That's not narrow. That's not loving. That's an intolerance at a ridiculous level. That was John, the apostle of love. See, that became his strength in his character, though. Because he also had a tremendous capacity for love. And if you show me a man who has a great capacity for love and no sense of truth, (laughs) no limits, no guidelines, no strong convictions, what are you going to have? You're going to have a disaster on your hand, right? So God knew the greatest source of truth in in the New Testament as far as a human author is concerned about love would have to be the man who was strong, he was uncompromising, or his love would take him down the road of sentimentalism. And he was to speak the truth in love. He had to be committed to the truth just as much as he was committed to love. And you find two things that stand out in John's life, in John's writings, the word love and the word witness or witness of the truth. He uses the word over 80 times. Love, that is. He uses, the, he uses love over 80 times. 70 sometimes he uses the word witness in one form of another. 
He always had to witness to the truth. And he was always a teacher of love. That's what personified him. It's so good that his love was controlled by his truth. He was a truth seeker. He wanted to know the truth. He was a discoverer. He was a visionary. See, it was him who first recognized the Lord on the lakeside of Galilee. You remember that? It was to whom God revealed the future throughout the book of Revelation. It was John. The reason he was hanging around Christ's breast was not kind of some sloppy, sick, you know, sentimental feeling. That's not what he was doing. He was there because he literally wanted to be as close as he could to Christ because he knew Christ was the truth. He wanted to get every word. He didn't want to miss anything Christ said. He became a lover, but a lover whose love was controlled by the truth. See, that's so important, beloved. I've been to some clergy meetings sometimes, you know, ecumenical things, and you sit around a table and the people start to talk about world events or whatever. And the one characteristic that stands out more than anything is love. We just all want to love each other. Just love. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter what, you know, we're teaching error or, or doctrine that's not found in the Bible. That doesn't matter. We just want to love. Can't we just love? And the minute you throw your foot in the circle and say, well, you know what? I mean, our, our church believes that the Bible is the authority, that it's the written word of God, that it's without error. What do they do? They look at you. Oh, that's intolerant. How could you believe such a thing? I mean, they're just total taken back by it. Because, see, they're all about love, but they don't want to deal with the truth. See, John is characterized by love, but his love is controlled by the truth that he knows to be true. In John 13, 23, over and over throughout throughout the, the Gospel of John, but in John 13, 23, it says, Now there was leaning on the on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved. You're going to see that phrase when you do a study on John over and over. Whom Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. That was John. Does that mean he didn't love the other ones? No. But he just had a a special place for John. He never uses his name. He calls him the disciple who Jesus loved. John doesn't. He always calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. The man had a heart of love and he had a heart after the truth. John literally took in the love of Christ and he literally gave out the love of Christ. So much so that he became the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John 19.26, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved. John 20 verse 2, then runs... And comes to Simon Peter, Mary Magdalene does, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. He's never given a name. It's always just whom Jesus loved. John 21, 7. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter. 21, 20. Peter turned about, turning about sees the disciples whom Jesus loved. Verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies these things. It is the disciple who Jesus loved. 
you see that over and over and over and over again. See, this wasn't some sick little feeling that he had down in his heart. This was something he was just a, a pursuer of truth. And his love for Christ compelled him to do that. And throughout his writings, he's never saying, I'm the one that Christ loved. He's not saying it that way. You know, I mean, he's saying it in a way that says kind of, you know, I'm the one that wanted to burn up the Samaritans, but Christ loved me. I'm the one that that wanted to take one of those seats on Jesus' right or left. But you know what? Jesus loved me. I'm the one he loves. See, it's a celebration. John is celebrating not his own personality, how loving he was. He's celebrating the grace of God. He's saying, in spite of myself, God still loved me. Christ still loved me. And believe it. This morning, beloved, that... I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care how bad you have been. The grace and the love of God can overwhelm that like that if you turn to God and you say, you know what, God? I need your grace. I need your mercy. Save me. That's a prayer he will answer. Jesus never had to ask John if he loved him. He asked Peter that, remember? He didn't have to ask John. He never had to ask John to follow him, but he did have to ask Peter that. And when it came to kind of dishing out the work, what did he say to Peter? Peter, remember what he said? Feed my sheep, remember? He said to John what? Hey, you know what, John? Take care of my mother. Remember that? Wow. Big difference there. Sheep, mother, you know, I mean, there's a big difference. (laughs) See, there's something special about John. Tradition tells us that John never left the city of Jerusalem until Mary, the mother of Jesus, died. Why? Because he kept his vow to the Lord. He wanted to take care of his mother. Hey, I'll do it. So John was a a son of thunder, but he was also this tender, loving man who would never compromise his convictions. He taught on love. You can summarize his, his teaching on love into basically 10 statements. He taught that God is a God of love that God loved His Son, that God loved the disciples, that God loves all men, that God is loved by Christ, that God loved the disciples in general, that Christ loved individuals, that Christ expected all men to love Him, that Christ taught that we should love one another, and finally, that Christ emphasized that love is the fulfilling of the whole law. If you go through the writings of John, you see these things over and over again. And he also was a witness to the truth. He was a witness of John the Baptist. He was a witness of Scripture, of the Father, of Christ, of miracles, of the Holy Spirit, of the apostles. See, he was always speaking the truth, and he was always speaking the truth in love. That's the kind of man that God can use. It's the kind of woman that God can use. So there are the James who just live out their passion, their zeal, their fervor, their fire, sparks flying everywhere. And then there's the John who somehow can harness the truth in love. And they'll last and they'll attract people to Christ over the long haul. See, God uses all kinds of people. That's kind of the point of this study. He uses somebody who's a fiery lover, whose love was a passionate devotion to the truth. He lived to be an old man. But he was always 
a son of thunder. What kind of people does God use? What kind of people does God draw into an intimate relationship with himself? Is it those people that we see in the stained glass windows? (laughs) What do you have to do to get really close to Jesus? When God came into the world and he walked in this world, God, the God of the universe, the living, eternal, almighty, holy God, when he walked into this world, he picked out four people, just four, to be close to him. Four men to be close to him. Four men to be his intimate circle. One was a dynamic, strong, bold leader like Peter. Took charge, he initiated, he planned, he strategized, confronted, he commanded people to Christ. Very often he blew it. There's another Andrew who's humble, he's gentle, inconspicuous. Andrew didn't see the crowds, but he saw the individuals in the crowd. While he never attracted a mob, he kept bringing people over and over to Jesus. And then Jesus picked a man who was zealous, James, passionate, uncompromising, insensitive at first, ambitious, who saw the goal and went for it. Didn't matter who was in the process. He'd run over whatever. Even himself, he was willing to die. And then there was a sensitive, loving, believing, intimate John, every bit a truth seeker, who spoke the truth in love so that he attracted people to himself. I mean, these guys were fishermen, beloved. They, they didn't have any degrees. They didn't have any life experience other than, you know, fishing. Peter finally was crucified upside down by his own request. Andrew, as we talked about last week, had the privilege of seeing a governor's wife come to Christ. And as a result of that, He was crucified. They didn't nail him to the cross. They tied him. So he hung there, history tells us, for up to two days. And as he hung on the cross, people walking by, he was preaching Christ to them, preaching forgiveness to them. That was Andrew. James was beheaded by the Roman sword. John was banished to the island of Patmos died around 70 A.D. You know what kind of people God chooses to use? Any kind. Any kind. You don't have to fit in a mold. How boring would it be? How boring would the church be if we were all the same? You know, lockstep. (laughs) We go to Grace Bible Church, you know. We're Grace Bible Church Robotrons. That'd be ridiculous. You look around the room, different people, different backgrounds, different experiences. God wants to use every one of us. And this is important. It's not what you are. It's what you're willing to become. That's the issue. It's not what you are that God's so much concerned about. It's what you're willing to become. These fishermen of Galilee did become fishers of men. They started the whole church, for goodness sakes. We wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for them. 
And in a sense, they're still casting their nets through us as we reach out to the lost on a daily basis. Christ can take very common people and make them a very uncommon people. If you just cooperate, if you just say, God, you know, here I am. Be merciful to me, a sinner. God, use me. Save me. Show me what you want me to do for your kingdom. God will do it. He'll show you that. He wants to use you today. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that even though this wasn't a, per se, a Mother's Day message, Lord, we got to see into the heart of two individuals who obviously had an incredible mother who was able to raise them up, men of commitment. Lord, I thank you that they were willing to become what you desired them to become. Father, I pray for each individual in this room, Lord, that we put our own agendas aside. Father, that we just throw it to the side. It's not what we want that matters. It's what you want. What do you want out of us? Lord, as individuals first and also as a church, Lord, we pray that Christ's name, that his ministry, that the gospel may be glorified in this place. We pray, Lord, that you would lift people up in this place for service to you. Lord, that they would be used in a way that they would never even imagine. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anybody here who is yet to take that step of faith, who is yet to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, I pray that you would do that work in their heart even now. Lord, it's only through the cross, through the grace of Christ, that we can have any relationship with you. It's really a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of being judged for your sins for eternity in hell or being forgiven for eternity for your sins in heaven. It's two paths, two ways. One of judgment, one of forgiveness. Doesn't seem like rocket science to me. Father, I pray that you would draw those hearts to you. They would cry out to you this morning. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.